welcome to Status. I'm here today with Ramesh Srinivasan. He is a professor in the UCLA Department of Information Studies and the director of the UCLA Digital Cultures Lab. He's an incredibly prolific scholar and someone who I respect and follow very closely. He is someone who's had a remarkable impact in the way we think about the sociology of technology and technology's impact on our day-to-day lives. He is incredibly prolific and there's a lot that we can't possibly do justice here and I have him for a short amount of time because he's got so much on his plate but nevertheless I want to jump right into it. Ramesh, welcome to Status. It's a delight to have you here on our program. Adel, it's a pleasure to join you. Thanks for having me, man. Oh, not at yeah. all, not at all. And and so I, d- I don't even know where to start, but there's so much to cover in so little time. So first and foremost, you have a new book. It's fantastic. I've had a chance to read some some excerpts of it. Uh, Beyond the Valley from MIT Press. It is absolutely timely in that you're you're challenging, you're pushing the boundaries of what can and cannot be done by developers and by communities online using technology and thinking beyond like this kind of uh, central kind of like structural mentality within Silicon Valley. Tell me a little bit more about the book, the impetus behind it, and where you want it to be most impactful. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I'd be happy to talk about the book a little bit. Um, you know, I wrote I wrote this book because um, a lot of um, you know a lot of what was offered to us um, as internet users and just more generally people in the world whose lives are increasingly uh, colliding with uh, digital technology and network technology. Um, you know, much of what we seem to participate in uh, are experiences that seem, you know, freeing or liberating or decentralizing, um, you know, and certainly there have been examples of that uh, throughout the Internet's history. Um, however, I wrote this book because um, many of those sorts of uh, practices are actually uh, today uh, uh, in reality, examples of baits and switches, if you will. Um, so, you know, when our, so you know, just to kind of ask a couple questions, right? When we go onto Google, um, are we googling or are we being googled? <laughs> when we go onto Facebook, are we socializing or are we being socialized? Mm-hmm. Um, are we searching or being searched? Um, in reality. Um, you know that there's there's a certain there's a certain language and logic by which our lives are being defined, and by which our opportunities are being opened up or foreclosed. And that logic and that language is the language of digital technology. It's the language language of data. And the issue is there's a profound asymmetry that we've actually never seen really in the history of media. There's a profound asymmetry when it comes to those who have the power to define what we see, what we believe, and how we um, sort of participate in the larger world. And that is a language that is dominated by uh, big corporate systems of power, as well as, um, I would say, extremely powerful um, and neo-imperialist nation states like the United States and in its own way, uh, the country of China. so that is absolutely the moment we've inhabited. And I wrote Beyond the Valley because um, I wanted people in a, in a way that felt familiar to them to understand uh, where we are at with these issues. And very importantly, to present a number of different kinds of alternatives where technology operates around the logic 
of uh, environmental consciousness or uh, collectivity or community or diversity in relation to not just indigenous peoples, but peoples across the global south. Uh, When technology operates uh, operates according to feminized principles, um, the goal is not to dismiss technology, uh, you know, writ large, but to actually expose uh, the hidden languages that are uh, generating great amounts of behavioral control, uh, surveillance upon us, and most importantly, uh, economic and political manipulation by which uh, the internet and new technologies are being driven. And this is not, again, just a question about Facebook or the internet. I mean, we hear these kind of slogans from political candidates and so on, like break up Facebook. Um, you know, that's fine. This is much more about how people will receive uh, housing, access to housing, how people will receive bank loans, how people will receive medical insurance or not, how people will be policed, how people will uh, interact with the, the criminal justice system, which we know is deeply unjust when it comes to uh, here in the United States. Um, these opportunities, these languages uh, by which possibilities are either opened up or most likely closed down and shut down uh, and subjugated when it comes to the dominant majority of people, working class people, uh, people across the global south, black and brown people. Um, these, these are. This is why I wrote this book because I wanted people to understand what's at stake here and what we can do about it. I think what's really remarkable about the way you've composed this book, and I, and it speaks to a, a tradition in your compositional style and your theorization, is that there's a remarkable amount of optimism and real, real possibility that moves beyond just the political economic critique, but really sort of looking at how communities could seek and find um, empowerment. I mean, the work that you've done prior to this book, whether it's in Tahrir Square or traveling uh, throughout India with various indigenous communities and how they use technology or in Kyrgyzstan. I mean, I've been following a lot of those phenomenal experiments in technology and how technology is used and helps us rethink cultural codes for collective empowerment. So that to me is is a continuation of that legacy, but sort of taking it straight to those those uh, big companies and saying, you know, we don't have to submit to this predicament. Yeah, absolutely. There are several aspects to this, right? I mean, these kind of global examples show that actually, in reality, the vast majority of internet users, both today and definitely into the future, are not in the United States. They're not in Europe. They're not even in China. They're in the countries of the global South, African continent, South America, South Asia, of course, the Middle East, you know, etc. Right? These are these are these are the places where the internet's future has the possibility to be defined, or the places where uh, where peoples and you know their practices will be objectified and subjugated and manipulated, which is you know the attempts that we see underway. So now, when you kind of look at those kind of global issues and the profound diversity that exists across the world, and the erasure of that diversity uh, into black box technologies that are sort of, you know, built by uh, white dudes, you know, with uh, kind of white imperialist data coded into them. Uh, when you kind of look at that and you apply and you, and you kind of sort of see the gaps between the realities of people's lives, uh, the ways they organize, the ways they economically, uh, you know, kind of engage with one another, even their own political values, certainly their ontological and cultural value systems, you start to open yourself up to a whole new blueprint by which technologies can actually support the interests of people in places based on who they are and where they are. And the cool thing about this is, you know, I started by doing, you know, this kind of work all over the world that is certainly uh, at the center of my heart 
uh, and my spirit, uh, which drives this optimism because I see it in action. But I think now we can start applying these examples from around the world to make a critique about workers in the United States, workers in, 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 in Europe. Uh, you know, we can make critiques about uh, democracy and, and how people receive journalism and the, and the manipulation of political, uh, you know, awareness and exposure to political information. Um, so now you can take these concerns around the asymmetries of power over technology that, you know, I've really looked at in various manners across the global south and looked for alternatives around and start bringing this back home. So you go beyond the valley to come back to the valley, so to speak. And I'm starting to sort of see the reverberations of that kind of theorization um, sort of tra traversing the Atlantic, like from Tahrir Square and the Arab Spring and the uprisings all the way to, you know, Wall Street and, and the valley, as you described. And, and you know, in some respects, um, you've, you've decided to to go from sort of describing those circumstances to trying to actualize them in the political circumstances that exist uh, in the United States today. And so not too long ago, you announced that you were joining or becoming involved actively in the Bernie Sanders yeah. uh, campaign as a national surrogate. Can you tell me a little bit more about um, why that came into being, uh, what inspired it, and what you hope will be delivered if, uh, if Bernie Sanders were to come to office by virtue of what you've worked on thus far? Absolutely. I mean, it's such an honor to be part of the campaign. I am a national level surrogate. I've helped a little bit with policy, and I'd be happy to talk about that. But first, let me just explain why uh, these concerns from across the world actually are so important in the United States. Um, you know, obviously, it's because uh, those who are uh, dispossessed, if you will, the 99%, you know, are, are face very similar concerns to uh, communities across the global south in the sense that, you know, we look at our world right now and we see about eight people or so having equivalent wealth to, you know, over 3.5 billion people. Um, and that's a global issue. But then what if you apply that same sort of analysis to the United States? Uh, this is something that Senator Sanders always mentions, you know, three people with equivalent wealth to 50% of the United States population. So three people with equivalent wealth to about 190 or so million people. So these profound inequalities and injustices are uh, the way of the world right now. And, and you can actually see how central technology is uh, in amplifying those issues. If you look at who the 10 wealthiest people are in the world, including, you know, someone who's attempting to sort of buy his way into the upper tier of the Democratic primary in Mike Bloomberg, you can actually see that these are people, uh, oligarchic kind of individuals who are connected to techno-capitalism uh, in a nutshell. So, uh, you know, my, my entire goal is to not have my work, uh, you know, start and end in the ivory tower. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm, I, it's, it, you know, I, 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 can I can produce that kind of scholarship, you know, that's, that's wonderful. I appreciate that for what it is. But I do know uh, that the very basis of academic publishing, and even to some extent the way in which we're supposed to academically express ourselves through language and vernacular, um, restricts uh, the circulation of our ideas to be part of a larger movement. So I'm, you know, I've been a, a supporter of Bernie's, uh, you know, dating back, um, you know, probably around a decade or so. I was definitely a supporter of his in 2016. But all of a sudden, in this campaign, I see 
profound opportunities for massive forms of transformation, not in a radical left way, but in a way that's balanced, in a way that's humane, in a way that follows you know, the, I would say the minimum standard of what, you know, a European social democrat or so would push for, um, you know. And so this is a campaign. You won't believe this, Adele. I mean, this campaign has record numbers of volunteers, mm-hmm. has record numbers of donors. Is We're talking about by far the most popular politician in the United States, meaning Republicans and independents are like, you know, I may not agree with everything this guy stands for, but I do really uh, kind of. Um, you know, I respect him because he he is who he is, and trust me, he is who he is. <laughs> and that's, that's, um, that's refreshing. That's and, refreshing at a time when he, he, really, he really is who he is. He's kind of grumpy and lovable at the exact same time. Um, and so, you know, you see this campaign, uh, you know, kind of built around the voices of immigrants, the voices of black and brown people, the voices of young people like my students, the voices of workers, uh, even the voices of uh, work, you know, of middle class people. Um, yeah, and you sort of see this large scale movement. You see the Internet, uh, you know, as a facilitator of this campaign. And it's kind of a reminder that the Internet it doesn't just have to be, you know, uh, what I described earlier in our conversation. So I so for me, the alignment, the ability to take these uh, for these these ideas that I've been writing about, these examples I've been writing about, bring them into the kind of campaigns, you know, discourse, if you will, um, assist the campaign anytime I can uh, with the media, with rallies, uh, with pieces I might write, you know, kind of explaining why this campaign is is by far the most powerful campaign in terms of standing up for middle and working class people in the history of my life in the United States. I think this message is is not only resonant, but but really quite reverberating quite intensely among the, precisely the communities that you described. I mean, communities that are historically disenfranchised in the United States are responding with a tremendous amount of excitement, enthusiasm, and and hope to the Bernie Sanders campaign, precisely for those reasons, and um, and I think the, the that sort of um, that uh, sort of transatlantic, transcontinental, transcultural kind of like feeling that what what will you know what will eventually have an impact here in the United States will uh, will effectively you know. Uh, reverberate elsewhere and vice versa that whatever happens in the indigenous communities in Kyrgyzstan or in in Cairo uh, or you know in in uh, in Madras will will in some ways uh, impact what is happening in the political uh, culture of the United States yes absolutely absolutely you know I mean this 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 campaign is um, and, you know we're at this moment where you know the sort of neoliberal establishment is being um, exposed for its hypocrisy and that is on you know both sides of you know the the, the two parties in the US but it's also something we see in much of Europe with this, you know, with uh, the ways, you know, things are being pulled apart in Germany and France and the UK and so on. And this is also, you know, a bit, in, in its own way, we see inflections of this across different countries of the global south. And um, I think the the good old model of so-called free trade that's based on worker exploitation and environmental, uh, you know, um, exploitation as well is not going to work. Um, the, you know, kind of vi- the false promises uh, that have been offered uh, to people across the world uh, are now being exposed uh, as being false because people's lives are not getting better. I mean, look here in the United States, the life expectancy is dropping for the first time in the history of the United States. This is the first generation, you know, the Gen Z kids, like our students, Adele, um, they 
they are the first generation in the history of the, this country, if you adjust for inflation, to make less than the, than, than its parents. Uh, these are very pro problematic downward trends. If you actually look at who the working class is in the United States, it's not you know what the mainstream media tells us, you know the CNNs and MSNBCs and stuff. It's not you know angry white dudes. It's it's actually young people and it's women of color as well, you know, dominantly, actually. So the, it's young people who are stuck and rooted into the logic of the gig economy, which is basically based on the idea that people don't get almost anything for their labor. They get paid almost nothing. They uh, can't unionize. They can't, they can't get pensions or health insurance. Uh, they're not provided a living wage, and they are actually seen as a dispensable uh, data producer mm -hmm. for the next uh, play, you know, which com companies like Uber and Lyft get into, which is basically the closure of, uh, of people's data to then allow them to take power over new types of industries like automated vehicles, logistics, and so on. So these are models that are disenfranchising the working class, and technology is being kind of sculpted in that image. And that's why, um, that's why this campaign is about reversing those issues on a human level. And for me, if I can add something, you know, kind of talking about how this can be kind of interrelated with technology, then uh, so much the better. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about where the Arab Spring and the uprisings in Egypt, which you found yourself completely sort of immersed and swept by it at a very critical moment, because this is where in the uh, ninth year, so it'll be 10 years since the, yeah. uh, since the Egyptian revolution, uh, if and when wow. uh, Bernie Sanders hopefully assumes the presidency of the United States. Uh, so <laughs> tell me a little bit about what that meant to you and how it, it's either helped formulate or helped foment some some of your thoughts around the role that technology plays in challenging those like structural inequities and those false promises that's such a great question and and let me let me also say that uh your work on this subject and speaking to you about this over the years has been extremely uh, influential and inspiring to me. Um, you kind of helped me in a, in a very deep way with your work and also just personally, you know, kind of just starting to understand what was going on, especially as someone, you know, who's not an anthropologist, not claiming to have deep and, and nor ever, nor should I ever claim to have deep, quote unquote, cultural knowledge or kind of, uh, you know, uh, deep, deep, uh, kind of, you know, not like not historical knowledge per se of those places. Though I did a lot of reading, and you know, I, I just really think that um, what we saw uh, in the Arab Spring is um, is is an example of of uh, actually something I write about in Beyond the Valley, which is um, you know, uh, there are terms that have been intellectually and, and in a corporate sense hijacked their branding terms like innovation or disruption or so on. And, you know, that those for some reason are words that seem to only apply to companies that actually don't necessarily innovate. All they do is produce the latest and greatest devices or technologies based on their infinite resources and they design things to die. You know, like Apple does that. They design their phones to die. Um, like it's called planned obsolescence, kind of like a Monsanto seed. So that's one model, right? But another model is what happens when people want to um, organize, mobilize, and face a great deal of constraints. You know, uh, as a, in complete contrast to you know what we see with plutocrats in tech uh, in big tech. 
right? Um, and, and, and this is what we saw in the Arab Spring. You know, it's not this, you know, silly objectifying narrative that, oh, because they have internet access, they are able to be revolutionaries. Um, you know, now we know more and more that that is not hardly sufficient for that to occur. And also that was not the case. <laughs> um, you know, and you, you've written about this as much as anyone in, in Jadalia as well. Um, so then the question, a much more interesting question occurs, which is how do people, given what they have, their constraints and their possibilities, uh, create the possibility and start to shape large scale social and political change? And that is what we saw occurring, you know, between 2011 and 2013 uh, in the Arab world. You know, I was there for a couple months each summer um, in each of those three years. And what I saw occurring are people who are, are people who think about how do I bring people together just sort of as a general question and what role does technology in any, in any manner at all, uh, have in that process. And so we saw examples, right. And you've written about it. I've written about it. We've talked about it on Al Jazeera. We saw examples of people taking things that were online, projecting them, projecting them into public spaces offline. We saw examples of people using Twitter in very intentional ways, not because everyone in the country has Twitter. Actually, hardly anyone had Twitter. Uh, they used Twitter to influence journalism and journalists so that then those journalists would remediate their the positions of these activists into uh, into their satellite TV networks and their mainstream media networks, which were much more accessible in Egypt. People are realizing uh, all over the world that if they want to, you know, create a world that they believe in and create a world that is that supports, you know, their own voices rather than the voices of elites and authoritarians and dictators and all of this, that they have to organize using all the tools in the sandbox, but understanding that the tools themselves are not sort of inherently written in an emancipatory way. It's all about subverting, appropriating, recombining. You know, I was sort of using, and I was talking to, you know, Khaled uh, Abdullah about, about some of these things with, from Mossadine, you know, and he was, he was talking about Deleuze and assemblages and, you know, kind of taking, you know, t using a bed sheet, using a projector, using one YouTube connection, and figuring out a way to bring it all together, to bring thousands of people together in Tahrir Square to to expose the wrongdoings of, of the military state, even expose the wrongdoings of the Ikhwan, the uh, the Muslim Brotherhood. So, you know, these are these are really powerful. Uh, this was extremely powerful and, and heartwarming and inspiring for me. And I started to kind of look for these sorts of themes all over the world. I was kind of looking at them before, but this opened my eyes in a big way. And, you know, in Beyond the Valley, I give all sorts of examples that just blow people's minds, you know, and it's just because I've had the great joy and, and, and privilege and fortune to have observed these things, you know, people building 3D printers out of electronic waste. Mm -hmm. Incredible. Uh, people in Chiapas or in Oaxaca uh, who are not provided cell phone access and want to organize in the model of community radio, um, they are literally building their collectively owned autonomous digital networks. I see those examples and I describe them in the book. You know, there are examples of people fighting for sovereignty, autonomy, justice, um, and they use technology as part of that practice, but they don't use it in a blind and naive way. They use it in a way where they, they are the actual innovators. I mean, they're innovating, recognizing their constraints. You know, they are actually the they are actually innovating because they're actually they're resourceful, doing more with less. And actually no longer does less become less, less becomes more as a result of that.
that somehow all those lessons learned can somehow turn into a perfect storm where technology is used for the greater good uh, and to basically subvert all these uh, in you know built-in inequities uh, and uh, and somehow you know see a, a, not only a road to the White House but um, a road for <laughs> emancipation for subjugated communities around the world because I think a lot of change will come if uh, if it uh, if that change arrives to the United States. Yeah, we are certainly hopeful. And you know what the great thing is? Most people, even in the United States, recognize that the current the current you know deck of cards they've been handed is 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 not going to work when it comes to the internet and digital technology. So that's partly why people are organizing in this pro people direction. There's no question that the Bernie Sanders movement, but just generally like my own layer into it, which is these questions of technologization of our lives, uh, are very popular with people. People across the political spectrum want technologies to work for them rather than uh, hidden interests that are surveillance based and manipulation based and. You you know, I think we can get a lot done, but I think we need to make sure that we really build a political movement about it, which is not really about technology in itself in a vacuum, but, you know, the future, a future for workers, a future for uh, our elections, a future for um, indigenous peoples, a future for immigrant communities. And then within that, there is a layer of technology because everything is being expressed through technology. Um, and, and as and we have to make sure we get that technology right. Uh, people need to be to disclosed what's known about them. They need to have the power to uh, audit systems, uh, any systems that involve vulnerable people. Those people should have power over the system. They should have design possibilities to kind of in, in design those systems if they are to even exist. Otherwise, you know, all these racial, gendered, and economic, and obviously global biases are going to become more and more pernicious in a world that is already um, disenfranchising uh, the vast majority of people. But I do think we're at this powerful inflection point where we can transform all this in a direction that's humane and compassionate and balanced. And so that's my cause, you know, and, um, you know, I really, really uh, appreciate you uh, wanting to speak with me about that. Amen, brother. Everything you said is just really, I mean, we're, we're immensely hopeful. And I think you're right. There is, it does seem like the, the door is not only slightly ajar, but there's a possibility of it being swung open and that inflection point is, is upon us. And, and there should be no surprise in that, um, you know, whether it's protest movements or, or communities rising up, um, you know, calling for, for justice on, and, and using this technology and basically kind of like almost hacking it or rigging it in such a way so that it serves their, yep. their purposes. I mean, it's happening in Lebanon, in Algeria, in Sudan, in uh, Hong Kong. I mean, just all over the world. And yes. British, you yes. Know, the United States is certainly no exception. We're under the impression that our democratic system is, is set up in such a way uh, so as to maintain and, and retain the status quo indefinitely. And it looks like, you know, this status quo is no longer sustainable for the vast majority of people in the country. Amen. <laughs> I'm right there with you. <laughs> know, we're preaching to each other's choirs. That's awesome. Um, well, listen, Ramesh, it's been really a thrill and a delight to have you on status. Um, I hope you come back and, and chat with us when, when you have more time and hopefully for, you know, a celebration, uh, a celebration <laughs> interview uh, a little further down the line. But uh, thanks for your I, time. I, I promise. I promise. I love talking with you. Every time you and I speak, I just feel like everything you say I agree with. And I remember <laughs> the first time that happened was live on all 
Jazeera, and I was like, what is going on here? I mean, it was more, the feeling was so. more than mutual. I'm like, wait a minute. I don't want to be in this interview. I just want to sit there and listen. You know, So it's, uh, it's really great to spectate yeah. and, and listen to you talk about the, both the work that you do and, and what, what, what makes you tick. And, and uh, it's, it's remarkable on so many different fronts. So keep doing what you're doing, and, uh, and we're, we'll keep watching and, and hoping. Thanks and for having me, man. So, Thank you for having thanks me. Thanks so much for being Appreciate on Status you. and Jadalia and uh, looking forward to talking to you again. Thanks so much, Ramesh. All right, man. That was an interview we conducted with Ramesh Srinivasan, professor at UCLA, right here on Status Elwada. You've been listening to Status Audio Magazine. The Status is produced by the Arab Studies Institute in partnership with Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, co-sponsored by George Mason University's Middle Eastern Studies Program and the American University of Beirut's Asfari Institute for Civil Society and Citizenship. Interested in pitching an interview, a program episode, or becoming a partner, email our associate producer, Paola Messina, at paola at statushour.com. To listen to more conversations, on-the-scene reports, and discussions, visit our website, statushour.com, or subscribe via iTunes and listen to us on the go. You can also friend us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Thanks for listening, and for more conversations, please visit statushour.com.